Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Zero Line from Resolute Square. I'm Lisa Senecal, and I am here today with Sarah Ashton Cirillo. And we also have a special guest returning because it was so amazing to have him here before, Oleksandr Misienko. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for this invitation. Oh, absolutely. Um, Alexander is the head of the Kyiv-based Center for Military and Legal Studies and is a true expert on everything that we really need to be focusing on right now. Um, so once again, Alexander, thank you for being here. And Sarah, I'm going to let you take it away. So that introduction of Alexander is, it explains a little bit about this guy uh, for guests who haven't seen him before, but it doesn't explain the depth of his knowledge regarding everything Ukraine, but also his geopolitical knowledge. Uh, over the last uh, several weeks and months, Alexander has uh, been in fine form, speaking to foreign media, going to foreign events. And I'm going to begin by asking you this, Alexander, the outcome of the Munich Security Conference, how did it leave you feeling after some of the events that took place there? Well, what I've noticed, you know, the role of Europe, because what I can see is that European countries uh, trying to understand and, you know, to rethink about uh, the role uh, of Europe in the future. And you know that uh, European politicians, there understand that, look, we need to stop and to think what's happening right now. And we need to give more, we need to invest more in our defense, we need to invest more to the defense defense industry, we need to support more Ukraine, when, because we understand that the main threat right now for Europe, for the European security, Russia, the main threat right now. So, and the battlefield right now in Ukraine, the battlefield for freedom and for the European future. And what I've noticed that more European politicians, they are coming to this uh, to, and they are thinking in this way and they are trying to refresh uh, the way of supporting for Ukraine. I can just uh, make explain of uh, Czech president, the president of the Czech Republic, Petr Pavel, and he told that, look, we found uh, several hundred thousand uh, shells, artillery shells for Ukraine. We found this in Europe here, and we found uh, some weapons in Europe here on the stockpile somewhere. They are here right now. We just need to invest. We just need to buy. We need to find money. It's not so. It's not so hard to do. So let's do it. And uh, what I saw also, and what I noticed that you know, uh, some like statements of the Danish Prime Minister, yes, and she told that look, we will give all artillery what we have to Ukraine right now because we understand that the main threat and the battle for the freedom is right now there, not somewhere near Copenhagen or somewhere here in Ukraine. 
And so I can see that Europeans there understand. And that's and that's a very good point. Because they need to understand, of course, uh, you know, that uh, after World War II, European politicians, they uh, knew that, look, United States will guarantee our security. Everything will be fine in the Cold War. Yes, we will be protected because uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapons, American nuclear weapons somewhere in Belgium, in Netherlands, in, in Germany, and so on. Uh, everything will be fine. So we are protected. And that's good. That's great. Because they have America. That's very good. <laughs> we, we want to have, too, you know, support from United States because we understand the most powerful nation in the world. Yes. But look, but if we will do more for our security, if we will invest more, if we will spend more uh, money, that will be good because we will protect uh, uh, Europeans, we will protect our freedom, we will protect our values. And we also need to do something for this because that depends not only for, from Ukrainians today. This depends also from uh, Germans, from, uh, uh, from French, from uh, Poland and so on. That's the common, I think, uh, the common thing because the common threats. For, for everyone. So I noticed this on Munich and Friends. Alexander, it's very encouraging to hear that uh, Europe is staying united and recommitting um, themselves, those countries, uh, to this fight and supporting Ukraine. And they get it that this is not just a Ukraine fight. We're having a little more trouble with that in the United States. Um, and we have, you know, as you well know, people like our Senator J.D. Vance going to Munich and uh, wanting to write off this as already a Putin win and why bother. But that that isn't our majority, but our system here makes it uh, the, mi- the, the minority voice who has control of our house has a lot of <laughs> control over what's going to happen with the funding. So I, I know Europe is is united and recommitted, but how does this, I'm going to say it's a delay, it's, it's not going to last, but how is this delay impacting all of our allies who get it and the U.S. hasn't quite gotten there yet? Yeah, uh, you know that, first of all, what I need to... Uh say about different minds you know some people some senators can think that look uh everything bad uh, we don't need to support ukraine more because you know that russian will russians will win and so on and so on and so on that's a mistake what i think that's a very big mistake because look let's look to the historical examples not just look uh, like i i i will not do the putin what putin did uh in the interview with carlson I'm not, you know, I'm not will be in the history depth in the history somewhere, you know, 100, 1000 years ago. No, no, no. I, I want to, I want to throw something out there for the audience that doesn't realize it though. Kiev existed for centuries before Moscow was ever even founded as a village. I just had to throw that out there. Please continue, Alexander Musienko. Yeah, exactly. Just two examples, you know, just two examples from the 20th century that look, some people thought and some politicians saw that, I don't know, uh, France and Britain, they will lose Germans in the World War One, 
And when we saw that United States uh, was helped to uh, European countries, to France and Britain, to win, they won this war. Also, the same example in the World War II. I just remember Second Front, and that was very helpful. So, but someone, some people saw that, look, probably maybe Britain will lose this war if uh, without supporting of the United States. So, United States is a great example how to help and how to win a lot of wars just with the supporting. That's a very important point. The second point that, uh, of course, about delaying. You know, uh, in these days we will have anniversary of, uh, we will have two years of Russian full-scale invasion to Ukraine. And 10 years when this war has begun from the annexation of Crimea, illegal occupation of Crimea, and Donbass, and so on, and so on. 10 years already. And two years of full-scale invasion. And we need to think about... uh, these two years and ten years, we need to think what we did, uh, what mistakes was, and what we need to fix for common winning. That's very important. And what I think that we need to think about delaying. Because, look, uh, we spoke before full-scale invasion. I remember these days with Ukrainian journalists here, with the experts, and this was, you know... Uh, we, was, we were talking about, for example, uh, supplying of weapons. We've got javelins in those times. And of course, but of course, if we had uh, two years ago before full-scale invasion, uh, American artillery systems, for example, or European artillery, of course, we did more. So the main thing what I think that to fix some uh, problems and mistakes that means delaying. We cannot uh, have any delaying of supporting because that's very important. I can I can just show one example. Look, if we will have attack MS missile or Taurus missile, German-produced missile, for example, to the end of this week, we can destroy uh, Crimean bridge, we can broken up Russian logistic lines, and Russians will have a huge problems. But if we will have the same missiles, for example, in June or on May, what Russians will do? They will build railway from Mariupol by the, on the occupied territory to the Crimea, and they will try to find a way what to do if we will broke their logistic lines uh, somewhere, I don't know, uh, on May. So time is very important. And now it's very important to understand that, look, not not just weapon. We are not talking about just weapons that we will, that we need. Of course, we need. We are talking also about the time, about the tempo of operation. That's very important to understand. So we need uh, some weapons in time because we need to strike uh, Russian ammunition depot. We need to strike the logistics lines. We need to have success, and we will do this. Let me jump in there, Alexander. You mentioned time, and you brought up some excellent points. It's it's not just let's get weapons to have them, you're pointing out exactly what we can do with these weapons. I'd like to pivot just a bit since we last had you on. We now have a new commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Defense Forces, General Sierski. It has been uh, just about two weeks since he's been appointed, uh, 12 days now uh, since his official appointment as the commander-in-chief. Does he have the understanding 
and the ability and willingness. So we know that he's been incredibly successful on the battlefield. We know, I, personally, as uh, soldiers, we're all loyal to him. Does he have the willingness to utilize these Western weapons in a way that will be most effective? Or are we going to see maybe some sort of repeat of what happened in 2023? He realized, of course, and he has a lot of willingness. I think that he is, you know, I can compare him, you know, to probably General Patton from the World War II uh, times. He is very, you know, yes, yes, because he 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 is like like this person because he is he understand everything what's happening on the battlefield. He understands that we that time is very important, time very important, and we need to use. He understands that look, uh, probably we need to concentrate our forces on some direction, maybe on one, two direction, not on the whole front line, you know, because we have a huge distance of front line. And of course, we understand that we need to uh, take some uh, and we need to choose some direction when we will strike with uh, more efficiency and with uh, our powers. It's very important. So he understands this and he, I probably, I think that he will, be you know more even even in the normal way in the, i i i just want to you you understand me clearly when i am talking about risks yes some risks i mean normal risks so that's not bad for that's not bad for the commanders it's not bad when uh, uh commanders can be risky you know more than someone uh, expects so uh but in normal way not just you know to over risking the situation at uh, and then uh, lost everything no no just in normal situation so i think that he understands this moreover i i i think that he understood also the situation uh, because uh, he was appointed in time uh, in the hard times i think you you understand because the situation current situation on the battlefield and he has objectives to stop uh, Russian offenses, offensive operation right now to uh, build a strong uh, defense lines on the front line and to stop this uh, offensive operation, then to prepare our forces uh, to the new attacks, probably new offensive, counteroffensive, maybe next year. Maybe we will see. I don't know. It will depend also from the uh, Western support and supplying of weapons. So uh, that's the main three objectives uh, to, to our new commander-in-chief. And, of course, I think that he understood this and uh, understands and he will do everything to, um, I think, just to protect, to defend uh, frontline and also uh, to continue preparation for maybe a future uh, offensive operation from our side. So Sarah alluded to uh, the troops being behind the new commander in chief. Um, there was certainly a, a lot of chatter prior to the change being made about, you know, how disheartening this was going to be for Ukrainian forces and how devoted they were to the existing um, commander in chief. Can you talk a little bit about the morale of the forces and the commitment not only to Ukraine, but to their new leader? Probably you saw some um, publications in media 
in American media also about the situation on the front line and they're trying to explain sometimes that uh, we have somewhere a low moral because of the situation and so on. But what I can see is that we need just to look on the situation on the front line. And, of okay, if we have uh, uh, so low moral in our forces, so why we are so successful in our defense? That's really also, that's very important point of view, because, look, we are trying to stop uh, Russian offenses operation on the eastern front line on different directions, five directions at least, and our forces uh, doing the best in this situation. Russians has only success in Avdiivka. Uh, that, of course, uh, because of using uh, a lot of bombs and using uh, military jets, they have uh, warplanes and so on. But we are striking them uh, by Patriot systems. Yes, we are doing this. So I think that the main point and the main example to look on the map and to see how Ukrainian forces protect frontline. However, we have some troubles with the supplying of weapons. We know about them. That's not secret. And we are not hiding this. We understand this. But we are trying to do all the best uh, to defend our frontline. That's the main. The second point, uh, I do not see any problems with the changing of uh, commander-in-chief. I think, and I spoke for, for several uh, commanders, officers, and also just soldiers or sergeants from the front line. And, you know, the main issue, uh, the main issue, weapons, supplying uh, artillery shells, drones, and so on. The main issue, uh, which people talking from the front, we need to have more weapons just to stop Russian aggression and uh, just to destroy as much as we can their tanks, their military vehicles, ammunition, and so on. That's the main issue. And if uh, soldiers disturbed by something on the front line or disappointed by something, they are disappointed because of weapons. If they do not have enough weapons, of course, they are disappointed and they can have and this has have impact on the moral, but not changing in the general staff or commander in chief. Everything in this point of view, everything is OK. Alexander, thanks for giving us insight into our defenders mindset. I want to speak on something very specific uh, that has uh, unfolded over the last couple of days. Speaking of a city that had been at the front lines for the 10 years that you were talking about earlier, Avdivka. And there was an area in Avdivka or near it called Zenit. Both areas were strategically redeployed, as I would put it, by General Sierski. Now, some folks have come out, even in the West, even in Europe who support Ukraine, and said that the withdrawal took too long. My argument as a supporter of General Sierski was that, in fact, with him acting to withdraw our troops, to withdraw my colleagues in the armed forces of Ukraine, within six days of him being appointed commander-in-chief by President Zelensky, that, in fact, showed his leadership, showed his courage to make tough choices. Can you talk a little bit about Avdivka and a little bit about 
what it meant strategically and what it means going forward, as well as General Sierski's leadership in that area. Well, I need to say that uh, Russians lost a lot of uh, tanks, uh, soldiers, armored vehicles, and so on uh, during this battle uh, for Avdiivka. They paid uh, a huge price for this, and that means that uh, they have more political and psychological and propaganda, uh, you know, objectives than uh, military objectives, because they paid a huge uh, price. And that's very important to understand, because Ukrainian forces uh, had strong defense positions in Avdiivka, which they built uh, during the years, because Avdiivka... Uh, located near the front line, near Donetsk, uh, from the beginning of the Russian invasion to Ukraine, on the eastern Ukraine to Donbas. And so Ukrainian forces uh, constructed a huge defense and built a huge uh, defensive line there. And that was, you know, uh, from Avdiivka, uh, that was... uh, good to have positions and to destroy Russian forces from there. But, of course, we understand that Avdivka was almost encirclement by Russian forces during for several years. I would like to highlight what you just said, not to cut off your train of thought, but it's, this is important to highlight. The war's been going on 10 years, as you talked. Two years full-scale, 10 years of war. You just pointed out something that a lot of people have not really touched on. Avdivka was nearly encircled for multiple years, even before the full-scale invasion. And that ties into the cost of what Russia paid in trying to take this city. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. for the, Exactly. Yes, correct. And so when we uh, saw that uh, Russians had some success, nevertheless, they lost a lot of people. They have uh, huge losses, uh, casualties and so on. But they and uh, they had uh, a lot of jets, warplanes, yes, on the sky, and they're using a lot of bombs. So um, Ukrainian commander in chief, uh, you know, made a decision to withdraw Ukrainian and regrouping Ukrainian forces from Avdiivka. That was, and I suppose that he made this decision. You know, not on Saturday when we saw official statement, but earlier, few uh, few days ago. Why? Uh, because uh, we cannot announce what we will do uh, with our forces, with our soldiers. You know, in this time, in this current time, not of course. We are doing this with some. You know, uh, we are postponed these uh, statements when we understand that our forces regrouping, withdrawing, and then. So he did it, and it was uh, a very good decision, correct decision, and uh, he told about this. And now uh, what I can see is that, look, if we will uh, look on the front line right now, Russians didn't attack with so much powerful like they uh, used to attack several uh, weeks ago, few weeks ago, for example, two or three weeks ago. They are trying to stop these attacks, regrouping, because uh, they have a lot of losers, and trying to find the way how to attack on different uh, directions, on other directions. So I think that that means that Ukrainian forces did 
the best, all the best uh, from this defense. Did everything. And then, and by the way, uh, Ukrainian uh, air defense system had shut down four uh, warplanes on the Avdiivka direction, Russian warplanes. That's also important. We talk um, mostly about what's happening on the ground, but things at sea have not been going particularly well for Russia, which is really incredible because when this full-scale invasion happened two years ago, the what we in the West heard was Ukraine has no navy and has no ability to be able to fight back against the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. My understanding now is a third of that fleet no longer exists courtesy of Ukrainian efforts. Um, can you talk a little bit about not just what that costs Russia in their their ships, but that it is a it ends up being an overall drain on their military system because resources have to go back in to building up the Black Sea fleet. Yeah, thank you for this question because you know we have really a successful strategy, Ukrainian strategy on the sea, and we have supporting uh, in this uh, with our partners. That's also very important. Britain, United States, France, Norway, which we can call, you know, sea coalition. Yes, which help Ukrainian to have success and victories on the Black Sea. And what I can see that, first of all, uh, Russians already uh, lost uh, 33% of their Black Sea fleet already. That's uh, a lot because Ukrainian forces already destroyed Russian submarine. They destroyed uh, a big ship like uh, Mos- Moscow. They destroyed, uh, you know, also other types of uh, Russian ships. And also Ukrainian forces had like uh, headquarter of the Black Sea uh, fleet of Russia in, in the occupied Sevastopol. And so, and uh, as I know, commander of uh, Black Sea fleet, General uh, Admiral Sokolov, he was dismissed. He was uh, because of the, he was resigned because he didn't do much for defense of the Black Sea fleet. So, of course. I would say not. Yes, because really successful story. I presume and I think that I'm not presume, I'm confident that Ukrainian forces will continue to use uh, sea drones, to use uh, missiles such as uh, Storm Shadow or Skalpig, and to use Ukrainian uh, military just, just to strike uh, Russians' uh, Black Sea fleet and some positions and some stockpiles on the ground and air defense systems, Russian air defense systems on the ground, and also will strike uh, their ships. And look, Russians right now hiding their ships in Novorossiysk and uh, in Abkhazia somewhere. They are hiding their ships. They are, little, they are looking afraid, and they cannot do anything because, anything because they cannot change their ships because they need to move through uh, uh, Bosphorus Strait and uh, Turkey will not allow to do this. So they cannot do anything. They cannot, they cannot change their ships. 
I'm going to just reiterate what Oleksandr Musienko said. Russia is literally hiding their ships because after destroying 33% of the Russian naval fleet, Ukraine has basically forced the Russian ships, the Russian Navy, into parts of that country that they cannot move those ships out of. And as you just stated, they don't have permission to go through the Bosphorus. Turkey is uh, very clear on that. And so, as Lisa and Alexander were discussing, one-third of the Black Sea Fleet, one-third of the Russian Navy fleet has been destroyed. And on top of that, they're doing what the Russian sailors and soldiers do best, which are cowering away like rats, like rats on the proverbial sinking ship, and in many cases, like rats on the actual sinking ship, thanks to our sea drones and aerial force. If anyone has not watched video that is available online of the drone attacks on the ships, do yourselves a favor. It is really impressive, and it's um, just one of the incredible um, bits of ingenuity of fighting differently that Russia is not prepared for, that um, they've encountered over and over again because they invaded a, a country that is not going to be defeated and will just keep innovating um, to be able to fight back and defend itself. Over and over and over again, they allow uh, themselves to believe they're superior. And over and over and over again, the Ukrainian defense forces, along with our partners and the Ukrainian people, are showing just how Russia is teetering on the brink of defeat. There, there's no getting around that fact. Russia will lose. Ukraine will win. Whether it's 2024, 2025, victory is Ukraine. Well, we're going to end it there because, my God, what could be better? Thank you so much for joining us again, Alexander Misienko. It is amazing to have you here. We are going to um, have you back very soon. We're going to be uh, announcing a, a special coming up within the next couple of days because we do want to mark the, the two-year mark of Ukraine's uh, full-scale defense of its sovereignty and democracy. Um, so thank you. Your, your voice is incredibly important here, and it will be in that special that we're having. So thank you, Alexander, for joining us. It's always great to have you, Alexander. Truly, you, your insight is invaluable, and I'm glad that uh, the American audience, the listening audience, is able to hear from you. It matters for the world's freedom. Thank you very much. Thank you for this. Thanks, everyone. We will talk to you next week and uh, look for a special announcement on Resolute Square about marking of the two-year mark of the invasion of Ukraine. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at The Zero Line.